0: One day left, the second day of ethics. I'm Nick Bratcher, uh, UW-Milwaukee campus minister. Do you want to start by a brief overview of what we went over yesterday? Right, so yesterday we talked about ethics, what it is, right? Can anybody remember how we defined ethics? Can anybody remember? Yes.
1: That which aims to answer the
0: question, how ought we to live? Yes, how ought we to live? How ought we to live, and particularly that means uh, that... While I have, on an occasion, discussed even broader policy implications, I had a couple people asked me after yesterday, and this was a really good point. Um, particularly consequentialism, the thing that we tackled a lot yesterday, one ethical perspective, is a pretty good grid for national policymaking. Right, like the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. Like that's a that's a pretty wise and shrewd political move. What I'm talking about is you in your life, right, when you make decisions, who you're going to vote for, what car you're going to drive, where you're going to eat, who you're going to befriend, like these kinds of decisions, the things that actually like, you are doing yourself in your own individual life, right? What I'm saying is that consequentialism is a very limited perspective from how you want to talk about it. And even as we talked about broader policy issues, uh, um, I had a Gentleman who's, I think, getting his Ph.D., talking to me about public health. And even as we talked about the uh, pandemic and shifting goalposts, he wisely pointed out, and I'm going to back down from my point about the shifting goalposts. I think what I should have said was this, that politically, we have no vocabulary for how to discuss the pandemic without consequentialism. Uh, That that politically speaking, I, I do think our epidemiologists... And our public health officials have a good health, good hand on the pulse and they are actively in real time doing the best decision making that they can. But I think our politicians and our public discourse revolves around essentially like what's the greatest good for the greatest amount? What's the, what's the greatest good for me? Even like the I'm not going to wear a mask, I am going to wear a mask. It's like it's very tied together with situational, like state to state and situation to situation. Like I don't have underlying risks, so therefore I can do what I want. And we have we lack a collective imagination. I'll maintain the point that we have a very hard time publicly discussing these things apart from consequentialism. But I do think our public health officials are thinking about it more holistically. I would say that. So I'm going to back down off my point that I made yesterday and say that. So uh, yeah, so we talked about how ought we to live? That's that's the ethics. We talked a little bit about the historical overview, where the West has come over the past 250 years, and why we basically have narrowed down uh, into consequentialism as the sole ethical grid, and therefore basically consent as the only ethical good, right? And so that as long as as long as two people consent to do a thing and it does not harm a third, it is morally good to do something. We also talked about the problems with that perspective, that it leads to whataboutism, right? More outrage than answers. It leads to more pain than promise as it destroys promises. Because if you are always situational in your ethical thinking, there's no room for you. There's always room for you to reevaluate the promises that you're making, the relationships that you're in, right? And then we talked about, finally, we talked about the, uh, more being more grave in guidance uh, that's situationalism, consequentialism, utilitarianism however you want to uh, call it that ethical grid assumes that you know the outcomes of the decisions that you're making um, somebody else pointed out yesterday after class um, class, after seminar that the the other problem is you don't even know the current situation that well <laughs> Right? Not only do you know the, not know the future that well, but also you can't know all variables of your given moment uh, the same way. And that's part of the reason why you can't know your future. So there's all these, all these problems about using consequentialism as the sole ethical grid by which we navigate this world. Now, today what we're going to talk about is what do we do with that? How do we navigate that? What do we, what's, what's the way forward? If that's, if consequentialism by itself is not a good method uh, of ethics, and it's not really working for us, as I've posited, how do we get out of this mess? Well, uh, you know, you're at RUF's summer conference, so you're probably not going to be surprised that we're going to look in the Bible, right? Uh, look with me at James 1, 5. I think it's printed in your outline. If you want to open that
1: up, you want to
0: open that up for context uh, you can print it in your outline. It says this if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Let's take a second to unpack what that means. Let's take a second to unpack what that means. James says that his readers some of them they lack wisdom now biblical wisdom when we think about wisdom we might just think about being smart right it's not that wisdom is skill in the art of godly living right it's about navigating our world you know in the best way possible and concludes that if we want to navigate it well we're going to have to consider god as part of the the equation right this is summed up in the proverbs right it's not pie in the sky thinks it, it is practical uh, most of the proverbs are about advice about uh, friendships business marriage relationships right these things about having a good uh, repute in your community if we lack uh, this ability to live in the world right actual lived experience right wisdom is doing that well if we lack that ability james gives a solution Right? What I've advocated to you yesterday is that we do lack that ability, that we have a very hard time living in this world with an ethically good and sound perspective. And James says, what you need to do, if that's your case, if you lack wisdom, is to ask God for it. Right? What is involved? Now we need to ask, what is involved in asking God about how to live in this world? What does that take? Well, it's more than just considering his advice, right? It's not like asking a friend what you should do. You know how you might ask, you might tell your friend, I've got an ethical dilemma. You probably don't say, I have an ethical dilemma to your friend, but you come up to them and you say like, you uh, you know, Billy Joe likes me, and also Jamie Job also likes me, and they're both really cute, and you know, one has more money, but one's smarter and funnier, so like, what do I do? Uh, and they, you know, and they, they'll give you some advice and you go, well, you know what? I like the funny guy, so I'm going to go with that anyways, right? So the, the point that I'm making is that uh, friends, you can kind of say like, yeah, I hear you, but you don't know more than me. What James is saying is that you lack the wisdom and that God doesn't. Your friend, God, knows more than you. It's not optional whether or not he's right. He is right always, Right. That's why you can ask him where you don't know. The other uh, thing I'd say about asking God, it's not like asking your parents about things. Should y'all ever do this when you're a kid, when you would ask your like, let's say you ask your dad for something and he says, I don't know. Go ask your mom. And then you go to your mom, and you say, Hey, dad said that it was a good idea for me to do X. And then she goes, So he said that? And you go, Yeah. So and then he said, But like I should ask you. And then she goes oh yeah sure and then they find out later that you actually didn't do what you said right like you can't manipulate God right you can't you can't get him to think differently about an ethical good he knows all the things and how they're supposed to work right and so what that means is notice what I'm not saying is that you can't get God to like give you good things or anything like that what I'm saying is he already knows what the good is Right? Yes, when you pray, he can give you good things. The Bible says that. Um, but what I'm saying is you're not going to change his mind about what is ethically good. Right? He knows what is good in this world and how to make good decisions. And you cannot manipulate him. And really what that means is when you put those two things together, when you realize that God knows what you don't, it means this, that what, you, what it means to ask God is to submit to his answer. Right, What James is saying is that you, you have to come under someone else's authority. And you have to come under a grid that is not your own. Your limited frame can't handle this. God knows the answer. He knows the right ways and holds people accountable to them. He has set up the world in a way that living ethically will benefit those who do what is dependent upon his care. Right. That all the world reflects him and he is good. And therefore, when we do good, we reflect him and good things occur. Right. uh, For the record. Yes. Maybe in the short term, you might suffer. There might be hard things. We'll get to that in a moment. But that ultimately, right, you will have done the right thing which you cannot know in consequentialism, right? Like, you can't know the future, but you can know in this perspective because you are submitting to something that is higher that does know, right? It means you might not like the answer that you get, To Submission doesn't mean, okay, you're right, Nick. Uh, I should ask God more. I should think about this more from God's perspective. Okay, Uh, I still want to know more about what that looks like. Um, But if he gives me the answer that I can't date Billy Joe, then I'm also not going to do that anymore. That's not how this works, right? What James is assuming here also is that God clearly speaks, that he communicates. The fact that he can tell you to ask God means that God answers, right? That he speaks to us through his word and that he's made it known how to live wisely. God is in control. And uh, because he's in control, he can know what is good in ways that we can't. If he's powerful enough to know his plan, right? Here's uh, a little brain twister for you. If God is powerful enough to know how all things work out, James is claiming he does, right? He has the wisdom that you lack, right? In this world, how to live. He also has to be powerful enough to know how to carry out that plan. Powerful enough to carry out that plan, right? Think about the, the dependence on those two things. The only way for me to know anything for certain is I actually have to have the ability to carry it out, right? If I say, um, if I say this cart is going to move from here to here in about 30 seconds, right? How can, I be sh- how can I be certain that that's going to happen, right? If you bound me up and tied me to the wall, I can no longer make that claim. But since I'm not tied to the wall and I have the ability, I can move this cart from here to here. The only way that I can make that kind of promise is if I had the ability to carry it out. God's promises are actually hinged upon his all-powerfulness, right? His omnipotence, right? For him to be able to tell you what to do is actually dependent upon him being able to carry out all good in the world. And James is claiming that is what you do when you ask God. You have to ask God that your ethical grid without him, consequentialism, fails, now, here's the thing. In the gospel, there's always good news and bad news about uh, solutions. Right? There's always good news and bad news about our predicament in this world. Bad news about our sin and good news about God's mercy. And the same is true about ethics. Right? When we think about God ethically, when we think about our world ethically, we find the gospel there too. Here's the bad news. Here's the bad news about our position. We don't want to ask God. Right, the way I just defined it, we don't want to do that. I, wanted, I Let's just. I just want to do what I want to do. I want to do what I think puts me in the best position. Last night we looked at Genesis three, right? What was Eve thinking as the serpent told her? Right, did God really say, "He's holding out on you"? I know the consequences. You will not surely die. In this situation, God has lied to you. He wants to keep you from having the best things. And so I have a situation in which you come out on top. Do not ask him. Just look inside yourself and go for what you want. It's been there from the beginning. That's the bad news. What lies at the heart of our ethical dilemma, we can talk all day about how to navigate the world and all this stuff. I'm about to do more practical things. But at the fundamental root of this, is that we do not want to ask God. That is our problem. We and we got to call that what it is, that is sin. Consequentialism pretends that we are gods. Right? That we know the future, that we are in control, but that premise it comes at a cost, doesn't it? Right? It's it's sin. We've talked about this. It gives us outrage, pain and gray. It does not deliver what it promises. Godly ethics assumes that we are so much less in control and it actually humbles us, right? It does not lift us up, it humbles us. Now, here's what I'm asking. Can you acknowledge that bad news, right? Can you accept that bad news? Do you see where your ethical control leads, right? No matter what I say for the rest of the seminar, if you can't admit this to yourself, that really deep down, your fundamental problem is not having better grids more knowledge, you know, that kind of thing. But your fundamental problem is you do not want to ask God about things. Then there's no way to move forward. right? We need to repent of this and turn from that old ethical system that only leads to pain and gray and confusion and move toward God and asking Him for His control and to submit to Him. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news. We can ask God. Like You actually can do this. God is ready to share his love with you, his wisdom with you, wants to place you in good places when you place your faith in him instead of yourself. What is assumed in the Christian worldview is that there is a God and that he has made himself known. And remember how we defined ethics earlier. It's the study of how we ought to live. Right. Well, it's a good definition. But if we're going to know how we ought to live, we've got to lean what we tend to do is lean heavily on the live part. I want to live. I want to know how I ought to live, you know? But what I want us to think, take a second to think about is the ought part. How ought I to live, right? An ought imagines an otter, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Um, someone who makes ethical rules, who knows how things are supposed to run and has a plan to do so. How ought we to live is really just a start. It's proper ethics is going to have to take God into account. It's taking God into account as we make decisions. Uh, Have you guys seen, there's a movie on Apple Plus that just won the Oscar for best picture. It's called Coda. Uh, Great film. Would highly recommend it. There's this scene in the movie. uh, No, I'm not spoiling the ending. There's this scene in the movie where, um, if you don't know what Coda is, it's, it's a movie about a, a young woman who is the child of a deaf, deaf adult, right? So her, both of her parents are actually deaf and they use American Sign Language to communicate. And she, however, can hear. And so it uh, turns out that she really loves to sing. She joins her high school choir and is actually trying out for Juilliard. And uh, in a final performance, her parents are going back and forth about whether they really want to support her and things. And they go to her big concert at the end of the year. And there's this moment where she's gonna do her big duet, her like solo kind of thing with another man who's also in the movie and is trying out for Juilliard. And they're singing this song, uh, All I Need to Get By. And um, when they're in, the the parents in the back, and the brilliance of this scene is the, the piano starts to play and then it just fades out and it's just them. It's dead silent. And it's from their perspective, and they're looking around while their daughter is just belting out on stage. And you can't hear it as the audience, and you're, you're kind of put in their position. And the father is sitting there looking around, and he sees a woman like two rows ahead of him, and she is just weeping. right? And then he looks over, and another lady who's down the road from him is just beaming ear to ear. And he just says, like, something is happening, and I'm not a part of it. So he gets home that night and he asks his daughter to like stick back with him. And they sit on the tailgate of their truck and they're looking up at the stars. And he asks her, like, what were you singing about earlier? And she tells him, like, I was singing about, you know, loving people and being part of the family and being able to depend on people. And he goes, you know, that, like, that sounds good. Like, and when she says it, you know, but it doesn't ring the same way. And he doesn't cry. And he, he says, will you sing it for me? And she goes, okay, and she takes his hands and she puts them on his throat and she sings to him the song that she was singing earlier. That is what ethics is. It's God taking our sin broken hands, our deafness to this world. And he puts his he puts our hands on his throat and he sings over us. Like That is what we are talking about when we talk about ethics. There is a way forward, but you have to be willing to let God take your hands and put them on his throat. Submit to him, to his goodness. There is a way out by asking God, by being submissive. He becomes greater, we become lesser. We admit to our deafness to this world. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to have God sing over us, for us to hear the song that he is singing over his creation? How do we turn to God, to him and his wisdom? Well, here's what I'm going to advocate practically. I'm going to take the next few minutes and talk about. Actually, does anybody have any questions over what we just talked about? Pause for that. Okay, okay. So here's, here's what that looks like. Uh, I'm going to advocate for something called quadrispectivalism. Let me say that again. Quadra-perspectivalism. There's a, there's a field of ethics called tri-perspectivalism. I'm calling it quadra because there's four. Really what that means is we're going to look at four different perspectives on ethics. right? And I actually would argue that all of them are found in the Ten Commandments. The most famous of all the laws in the, in the Bible of what to do and what not to do in this world, there are really... Four perspectives that are buried in those, the in the decalogue, in those four or in those ten commandments. Uh, I'm gonna go through them in order. First, consequential ethics. Notice uh, I all this time I've been saying consequentialism as a sole ethical grid is not a good decision. That does not mean that consequentialism is a bad ethical grid. Right? It's not the same thing. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Concerned, consequentialism is concerned with goals. It is concerned with end products. And it asks the question, right? All of these have a question attached. This one asks the question, where are we to go? Where am I going? Where do I want to end up, right? Looking into the future and working toward the best scenario is biblical. It's, it's a, that's a biblical idea, trying to achieve what is good in the world you know, looking ahead and trying to make wise choices given the the circumstances—that's not a bad idea. That's a good idea. And in fact, God bakes it into the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus twenty twelve. If you want to look at Exodus twenty, they're all there. Um, if you'd rather have that open, Exodus twenty twelve says this: Honor your father and mother, that or so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In other words, do this so that. A a good consequence happens. God's not unfamiliar with consequentialism, right? It's not a bad idea to honor your father and mother so that you uh, can live long in the land that God gives you. It's not wrong. It's just not the only ethical perspective. I'm going to move on since we've already talked about consequentialism. The second one that is in the Decalogue is existential ethics. Existential ethics. Now, this is concerned with character, Right? Asks, it asks the question, who are we to be? Right? Last one asks, where are we going? Where are we to go? This one asks, who are we to be? Who, who am I becoming? Who do you become by taking a certain action or inaction? Right? Now, really, this is throughout the Ten Commandments. You know, uh, what does it make you if you worship idols? Right? It makes you uh, an idolater. What does it make you if you commit adultery? You become an adulterer. What does it make you if you want uh, your neighbor's stuff? Well, that just makes you ungrateful. Just kidding. Uh, right? It's, it, it makes you a coveter. right? Um, when you do the things that God says not to do, you become the kind of person you don't want to be. right? That was my friend when I told him that I was going to lie. He was like, but then you would be a liar. <laughs> you don't want to be that person. Don't you want to be the kind of person who doesn't do this? Right. And if I had to stretch it, uh, force it to just fit one commandment, I'd say this. Uh, God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. Uh, We are created in God's image. We are God's image. Right. So don't make one. The idea is you already are. Be what you are. Don't make another one. Right? created in God's image to worship only him. We are supposed to point to him, not some uh, piece of wood or plastic or metal. Right? So there's eth- existential eth- ethics. Who are we to be? Right? Asking the question like, who do I want to be? Do I want to be the kind of person who does X, Y, and Z? Right? I might get away with it. In fact, th- good things. People might even be happier on the other side of this thing, but do I want to be the kind of person who has to do the things that got that good outcome, right? What would, what would that say about me? Uh, third uh, perspective we should consider, if we're going to consider God's wisdom, is normative ethics. So We're talking about consequential, existential, now normative ethics. Norms are just laws. A norm is just another way to say a law. Uh, and, and normative ethics are concerned with laws or with duty, Right? Uh, This asks the question, what ought we to do or what are we to do, right? So we've asked, where are we going or where are we to go? Who are we to be? This is, what are we to do? What am I supposed to do? Pure and simple, right? Norms, what's the law? No matter what time or place, like, what am I just never supposed to do? And what am I always supposed to do, right? Norms, where this perspective takes its name, means laws. It asks, Regardless of the situation, what is always right and what is always wrong. Notice uh, there's a few of these at the end, but like Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. It's not like you shall not murder because if you murder, then your neighbor might murder you and then you just get a string of murders, right? Like that. Yes, that might happen, but God doesn't give a rationale. He doesn't say like because or consequentialism, this is what could happen if you do X, Y, or Z. He simply says, don't do it. Ever, under any circumstances, you are not to murder, right? There is no excuse for ever doing some of these things, right? Lying. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. He doesn't say unless, you know, just don't. Don't do it. Uh, Some of y'all are going to ask, well, what if there's, uh, you know, if you're in Nazi Germany and there are Jews in your basement? uh, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. There's always, again, you aren't in Nazi Germany, and there aren't Jews in your basement. So, like, again, let's talk about what really happens, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, yeah, so this is normative ethics. Uh, it seeks to conform our lives to God's laws. It's just pure, this is the right thing to do. Lastly, uh, the fourth perspective I would say is, uh, I coined this term, it's narratival ethics. Right? it's narratival ethics this is something John Frame has talked about it uh, I just call it this because it's helpful narratival ethics is concerned with vision it asks the question how am I to see right? what, what story am I living in and how am I not uh, like how am I seeing this properly if I understand what has come before and what has come after what grand narrative am I a part of and what do I think I how do I think I am living in it as a character Right? God, and his sovereignty over all things, gives us a unique view of the world. Right? A pair of glasses that we put on, and this is how we see people. Right? If you believe the Bible, you believe God, people are made in God's image. Right? That's a certain way of thinking about people that not everyone shares. Right? Some people do not think that everyone is equal in dignity and worth. But we do, and that informs how we treat people. Right? We have a story that's clearly in the Bible and we are players in that story uh, we see this in the preamble of the Ten Commandments right uh, before God lists out all these norms all these laws he says and God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery in other words you need to understand where you're coming from for these laws to make sense. For you to make sense of how you are to live, you need to know how I have brought you to this point. Right? It's a, it's, it's a perspective issue. Um, it's, it's narratival. Now, uh, this one's a little bit harder to grasp, I know. So I'm also going to say it like this. How does this work in action? I'm going to give this one a, an example. Um, you see this in, in the story of David and Goliath. Right, popularly we think of David and Goliath uh, as being like a story of like David's courage, and maybe even if you're in like RUF circles and your pastor has talked about this before, he might say like David's not the hero of the story; God's the hero of the story. But I want to talk about like how is it that God is the hero of that story? Right? Uh, in First Samuel seventeen twenty four says this about the beginning of the David and Goliath scenario: All the men of Israel, when they saw the man that is Goliath, fled from him and we're much afraid, right? The scenario that is set up is that this Philistine is giant and all these men looking through consequential ethics, right? Looking through an ethical grid that says, what kind of situation am I in and how can I do the most good for the most amount of people, minimize the pain? The most good I can do is to stay away from that guy, right? I know how that's going to end up and the way that it's going to end up is me six feet under and that guy absolutely trouncing me now notice how David sees the situation notice the narrative that he's living out of that these men aren't in verse 26 of that same chapter just two verses later says this and David said to the men who stood by him these same men what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel for who is is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right. The victory that David wins is not bravery. It's not consequential. It is actually narratival. It's a perspective that he has. He is seeing it rightly. These other men look at David, look at Goliath and say, "We're going to get trounced." David looks at Goliath and says, "God will trounce him." Right. He is living out. Of a, of a narrative that knows that they are God's people and it is Goliath who should be afraid of God not the other way around and that is what wins the victory that God is actually more powerful than Goliath right He's, He has the right question how am I to see so to, to uh, sum up again right so we' the questions we want to ask are where are we to go? who are we to be? what are we to do, and how am I to see? Right? These four perspectives. Now, these perspectives, wait, questions. Questions. Those perspectives. Anything unclear about those four perspectives?
1: Yes, in the back. Um, I don't as well. So, I think, like, you talked you mentioned about, like, consequentialism as, like, it's so cool, like, not working because, like, two major reasons like, first, it's like, we have uncertainty, right? Yeah, a little bit. Uncertainty is about the situation Yes. And that would probably be easily solved by like best effort And the second is that like the helpless itself would work like, I mean, for this pain as a lot. But I think like what you mentioned just now is like like you have like there's like the ethics of God and so on like you have to take God into account. If that's the case, but I mean for example like commands in the Bible, you can kind of like boil down into the goal of God's command is actually Yes. Like God is like do whatever it please, and so like people should be doing whatever please God and to go out like God. And if that's the case, then wouldn't be that we feel a so consequentialist? But the matter is like the problem is that the people wasn't doing their best estimate in the sense like they didn't go to Bible to see how uh, to understand the situation and, and the consequence. Yes. That that's why rather than like they do self observation and so on, and the consequentialist. Calculus, like you're calculus, they didn't put God in their account. Yes. But instead, like, they just focus on, for example, like, idolatry. Why idolatry is a problem is that, I mean, it doesn't harm anyone and it, doesn't, it might not harm you, but it, like, God doesn't think, like, something yes. like that.
0: Yes. So if we put it in that way, wouldn't that be easier for us to put it as so
1: consequentialist? But in a sense, like, uh, first of all, we need to have the best, have estimate. Yes,
0: yes, yes. I, uh, yes, your point is good. Um, yeah, that like part of the issue with consequentialism is that yes, it doesn't take God into account as, as much. But if you notice, yesterday I did point out there are ways in which even Christians, right, who are trying to take God into account, can on some level like misstep by looking only through the lens of consequentialism. What I'm trying to advocate is that a Christian will look through all the lens, like that, that God has given us multiple perspectives by which to assess a situation, right? And that um, even saying, uh, I want the right goal of God's glory can actually in consequentialism lead us to the wrong thing, right? You might even open up the Bible and say, look, okay, God um, right? Uh, God does not uh, want, oh yeah, okay, here's a good example from history. God wants people to worship him, right? Uh, Medieval ages, people understand that. They're like, God wants everybody to worship him. So what we're going to do is we're going to go and we're going to march into Palestine and we're going to take it back, even if we have to kill people over it, right? And we're going to make sure that everybody worships the Christian God, right? They're right about what God wants, but how they got to it, right? And what kind of people did that make them, right? The question that I would ask is, what kind of people did that make them? It made them murderers, right? And what kind of... uh, Because it's not a just war, right, at that point. Um, It makes them murderers. Uh, What kinds of laws did they break, right? God just said, do not murder. So don't do that. That is not how you get people to worship him. He doesn't want you to do it that way, right? There are ways... What I'm saying is pure consequentialism, even from a biblical perspective, is not going to get you all the way there for ethics, right? um, And... Yeah, can I, I'm going to talk very frankly for a moment. Um, some of our current political issues, are like especially the evangelical world, is due to people looking at consequentialism as the sole ethical good. This guy will get the right Supreme Court justices, and so any behavior that he does, we're just going to paper over it. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote for Donald Trump. I'm not saying you should vote for Donald Trump. What I am saying is this, that there were a lot of evangelical people that dismissed the way that he spoke about women as locker room talk, and that is inexcusable. Right? What What I'm saying is that consequentialism leads us to dismiss poor behavior sometimes if our ethical aim, we think, is God's good and his glory. And what I'm saying is you cannot get God's glory without taking all these perspectives into account. That is the only way forward, right? That is what I'm saying, is that we, even in the church, have often diluted God's wisdom into consequentialism. And we have to even think consequentialism is not the only perspective we have to have on things. God is also concerned with what kind of people we are. He's concerned with what he has said is always wrong and always right, right? Right? It is always right to treat women with respect and it is always wrong to speak poorly about them. Always. Even if you're not mic'd up and you don't think anyone's listening. Right? These are are things that that are in God's word that we don't always consider. And I think to get what we want, sometimes we overlook them. And I think God is giving us a reproach here and is asking us to repent of that. Right? And to see his wisdom for what it is. To ask him. Right? Okay. Okay. Uh we gotta move. We gotta move. Uh, that was a good question. I appreciate that. Um so we could unpack that a little bit. All right, so these perspectives, here's the que- here's the next the next piece. It's like, okay, so there's four of these now. What do I do with all four of those? That's like a lot. You just gave like us a lot of things to think about. Uh wh- how do I do this full or perspective? Um here's what I say is independently at least, they all promote different things, right? So um uh, existential ethics right, promotes friendship right, as we ask, who are we becoming? Right? As opposed to what will get me more money. Right? We talked about that yesterday. You start asking, like, who, who do I want to be? And all of a sudden, that job doesn't look so attractive anymore, even if it's what I kind of wanted to do. I, I get to be the right person here. Right? Who is helping me get to, to be where I want to be? Asks a different question. It refuses false dichotomies and whataboutism. Right, uh, Normative ethics says there can be two wrongs. <laughs> you can both be wrong or you can both be right. Just all, you're, uh, this is always good or this is always wrong. And it applies to voting in elections, you know, where there's refusing the lesser of two evil arguments. But also um, abortion creation care. You know, it's not it's not just that, um, you know, we should put all the minors in West Virginia. I grew up in coal country like we should put all of them out of work and no one cares about the lower class, uh, and we need clean energy. It's like, well, we we actually need both. I want people to be able to eat, but I also think we should care for our planet that God has given us, right? We can say both of those, God has said both those things are good, and we do not need to pick between those, and we should refuse to do that, right? Uh, Narrative ethics allows us to see situations rightly uh, so that we don't make too much of ourselves, right? Right? when we make too much of ourselves, we lead to anxiety and overwork and burnout, right? What I would say is uh, seeing yourself as part of a larger story allows you to tamp down the anxiety-ridden age, right? And say that God is in control. He has redeemed me. I'm going to do my part for today and no more and no less. And I can rest on the Sabbath, right? Like things that things that our culture has no category for, Um. Said yesterday that you can also uh, underthink and overthink marriage. It's like true on, uh, on a macro level. Um, sorry, true. It's true on a micro level. Like, there's a way that you can overthink marriage, right? That, um, you know, that you can like try and like make sure that this is the spouse. Like I said yesterday, like, even in a Christian perspective, you might say, like, I want to make sure that he really loves Jesus. He's, you know, really in the word or whatever. And what I'm saying is, like, yeah, but there's going to come a time where like he's not that great. You know, like you're going to wake up one day. My wife has woken up and looked over at me and been like, my life would be better if you ceased to exist. (laughs) Right. She has looked. She's thought that before. And I really don't blame her. I've looked at her and been like, you're right. (laughs) You know, I'm sorry. I love you. And like, uh, like maybe we can please forgive me, you know. And what I'm saying is, like, what this allows us to do is stop overthinking marriage, right? There is a way to underthink it where you're just like, God's in control, and you marry anybody. Like, that's maybe not so good of an idea either. But, like, you don't have to play God and know all the things that are going to happen to you for the next 50 years. You can simply say, this person loves Jesus. And also, right, um, in our... When we're talking about virtue ethics or when we're talking about uh, existential ethics, you can ask in dating, instead of asking all the time, like, is this person going to be good for me? What if you ask, like, am I good for them? Right? What if you ask, who am I becoming in this relationship? And am I actually a good person? Right? Am I actually someone that's worth marrying uh, instead of the other way around? All right. So, uh, yes. So I want to make a case like these these other perspectives in our day to day lives genuinely do make a difference about how we move and navigate in the world. Now, the question is, uh, I was alluding to it earlier. I got a little ahead of myself. How do we put them together? Right. How do we how do I take all four of these and kind of put them together? What does it hold? What does it look like to hold all of these in one person Here's the good news: the Bible doesn't just like say, like, good luck. <laughs> right? God has come down in the form of a man and he lived it. He lived it. All four perspectives all the time. Jesus is where all four perspectives come together. We are to seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Uh, Matthew 6:33 right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right, the largest portion of Scripture where Jesus is giving ethical norms, where he is saying like, you know, if you uh, hate your neighbor, you've murdered him in your heart. If you look at a woman in lust, then you have committed adultery with her in your heart. He's lifting the law to new heights, right, and gets to this section in Matthew 6 at the end, gets to this section on anxiety, right, which is really trying to control what you cannot control, right? You don't get anxious about like, whether or not that wall is going to fall down, right? You, you don't know if you can control that. You've never thought about that until right now. Maybe now you're anxious about it, uh, right? But the truth is we're anxious about things that we, that we can't control. I don't get anxious about whether or not I can move this cart, right? Now, if I wanted to and my life depended on it and you tied me to the wall, now I'd be very anxious, right, about the same situation. We get anxious about things that we want to control that we can't. Jesus is talking about that. And what do we find there to, as Jesus' antidote to our attempts to rule the world? He says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It means asking, uh, not what would Jesus do? I, I love the little bracelets. I grew up in the 90s where like the what would Jesus WWJD bracelets were everywhere. Um, I think that's a good start. What I would say is uh, you aren't him, so you can't like, do all the things that he does, right? You can't like read people's minds and like give them like perfectly timed uh, challenges and things. But here's what I would say. What what Jesus is inviting us to do is to think of God first in his righteousness. So what we should ask is, what would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were me? How would he behave if he were me? Right? Uh, As we see him and we get to know him in scripture, that is where we come to find out what it means to hold these things together. I, I can't go through everything, but I, that's Jesus' piece of advice for, when, for, the, for the consequentialist worldview that, that brings on existential dread and, and, um, and anxiety and depression. His antidote is to seek first God's ways. Right? And that means getting to know Jesus in his word and asking the question, what would Jesus do if he were me? That's how all those four perspectives come together. All right, questions? Questions? Yes?
1: Um, I mean, it's really helpful to have the example of Jesus to, to imitate and thinking about this, but like... When the rubber meets the road in your own life, do you actually like like if you have a big decision to make, do you go forward and like look at all like all four of these and like yes,
0: yes, okay. yeah. I I will I will literally run down each of these and and like hopefully, um, you know, for good decisions sometimes it's like they're good in all four perspectives like you know what I mean. Like sometimes it's like. I can, you know, help a bunch of people here and I can help a bunch of people here. It's barely the same amount of people. It's consequentially both good. And then this is, you know, and like, I'm going to be a good person either way. And I'm going to, you know, like, uh, and God's laws say that both of these things are the right things. And then you just kind of have to make a decision of what you want to do. Right. Um, but yeah, I will, I will work through each of these perspectives when I have a big decision and I will think like, who will I become when I make that kind of decision, how, like, how much good can come from this as much as I can discern, right? Like, I will work through each perspective um, and, and, and think through it, right? Other questions? Thoughts? Uh, I'm hit, yes, I'm going to hit somebody. You, uh, so, years ago, there was a book wrote uh, called Decision-Making and the Will of God. Mm. And... Uh, the great book bestseller premise of it was there's no doubt okay there's no uh, there's only one right answer here and uh, I have to read it you know I was going through all these some major career life-changing positions and so it was very
1: freeing uh, can, you, can you comment on that yes
0: uh, I think oftentimes
1: if we're searching
0: the scripture, we're looking for the dot. Yes. This is the only will of God. Yes, right, yes. Uh, yeah, what I would say is the, the beauty of uh, looking through these perspectives, right, says that if you can arrive at a decision where, yeah, like all these things are good, then like you have freedom. Like that's what Christian freedom means <laughs> is that like God is pleased with you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to find the thing and then God will be happy with you. Instead, right, you are working from a place where you're acknowledging his will, you're submitting to his will and you can you have freedom to do things that fit through these grids and are good, right? And, and so, uh, yeah, I would say sometimes it just boils down to like, what are you gifted at? What do you really want to do? There's a there's a whole other seminar, and you can find it on Ruf's webpage about like how to how to do the biblical decision making. Um, but it boils down to like, is it ethical? Is it good? Uh, lawful? Do your friends and peers and supervisors think that you can do it well? And are you um, and uh, do you want to do it? <laughs> right? Like that's uh, It's a like a two-day-long seminar usually, and I just did it in five seconds. But um, yeah, you can look that up more about decision-making. But what what I'm trying to do is give you a grid to help you do the ethical part of that decision-making, right? If you don't want to do something, it might be good, right, for you to do something. Um, You can filter through all these grids, but, like, you don't have unlimited time, right? So on some level, you can't... uh, on, on some occasion, you have to come to the beach and come to summer conference. Yes, you could have spent the week handing out tracts or doing evangelism or doing lots of other things. But on some level, you need to actually sit under the word of God and be like ministered to. And you can't do all things all the time maxed out, right? You, Jesus didn't even do that. He drew, withdrew from people. And so it's just worth noting that like you have freedom. This, this perspective actually lets you say like, okay, there's lots of good things but I'm also not gonna, I'm not gonna will a good thing even if it's not actually filtered through the right, the right means, right? Um, uh, let, me, let me handle, uh, man, we are running out of time. Okay, so what we're gonna do, uh, if you want to keep voicing objections uh, or whatever, I had some things that we're gonna skip over, but it's enough of me talking and I want you guys to talk. Uh, in, the, in the outline, you'll see a case study at the bottom. Uh, what I want you to do is uh, you to, do this, to take some time to read the case study at the bottom of the page and think about what advice would you give John about his test and why based on each ethical perspective, right? I want you to take into account all four, and then I want you to ask essentially the question I said to ask you, right? Like given all these perspectives, right? How do they hold together in Jesus and what would like Jesus do if he were John, right? And I want you to tell him why you think that that's what he would do based on the ethical perspectives that you're looking at, right? Um, I'm gonna have you take some time to read it quietly and then we're gonna pair up. Like it can be groups of like four or five. It doesn't really matter. But, uh, and then we'll we'll meet back together. So I'm gonna give you a second to read it.